consequences of our sin, the domain of darkness from spiritual blindness and spiritual death and hopelessness uh, to life and to hope and to light and all by your doing and for your glory. And we love to sing that theme and we delight to hear that reality worked out in the lives of those who will be giving their testimony this morning of your grace in their life in the waters of baptism. And we pray that um, as they share that we would rejoice with them of your saving work in their life and, and in our own lives, we who know you, and just the fact that you are a saving God, infinite in holiness and glory and majesty and might of such glory in your being beyond our comprehension, and yet you take thought of us, and you've shown mercy to us, and you yourself, our Lord Jesus Christ, humbled yourself to the point of obedience, to the point of death, uh, even death on a cross. And so we want to honor you and exalt you in all that we do. So to that end, we pray that you would help us by your spirit, and we ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, you might notice uh, those who are here regularly that we have shortened the front end of the service, and that is, of course, to give us time to hear these testimonies uh, at the end of the service in the waters of baptism, and so we have four of them, and that's always a highlight for us. It's always exciting uh, to hear them. So we are going to, uh, we cut out a few things up front, and we'll, uh, I'll try to go shorter. I have to. I'm watching the clock. Don't worry. Um, but, you know, in, in preparing to hear these uh, testimonies, uh, it's nice to pull the car over a bit and to consider uh, an aspect of the gospel. Uh, and this is one that we have been considering as we look at the churches, and particularly as we've been looking at the church of Laodicea. But we can uh, look at it from another angle yet this morning, and that is the issue of repentance, the call to repentance, the call of what it means to be a follower of Christ and a disciple of Christ. And to do that, we'll look at Mark chapter 8. So if you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 27 through 38. So Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Uh, 11 verses, and so that's obviously a lot to get through. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to skim the, the mountaintop, if you will. We're going to skim the top of the water. But we want to take the overall picture and look at Jesus' own call to his disciple, and not only to his disciples, but to the crowds who were following him, of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God, what it means to actually be a follower of Christ, what it is that he calls us to, not only in the glorious end of our salvation, but what we are willing to demonstrate or what must is required of us to demonstrate to fully embrace his saving work. Let me go ahead and read the passage and then uh, we'll look at it. Beginning in verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he questioned his disciples saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him saying, John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And as he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, and turning around, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, 
For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. And he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And as we come to this section in Mark, we come to a turning point in Mark's revelation of the Christ, in Mark's presentation of Christ to Israel. And it's the turning point in the gospel that's now focusing on his coming death, the coming Passion Week that lays before him. And it's a turning point in this highlight uh, confession of who Christ is, who, who the disciples are beginning to realize with more and more death, not yet what will be in the future, of who is this Messiah? Who is the Messiah? And so let's begin by merely looking or simply looking at the confession of Christ, the confession of Christ. And that is what we read right at the beginning. Jesus has now, throughout the gospel, been continually demonstrating himself as the Messiah, the promised son of David, the promised son of man, the reference he likes to refer to himself, tapping into the, the expectation of Daniel chapter 7 and the prophecy there. He has been healing the blind. He's been raising the dead. He's been teaching them with authority from the Old Testament. He's been confronting the leadership. He's been announcing the kingdom and announcing the kingdom, which was a call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he has been dem demonstrating himself, his power of the kingdom, his power over the spiritual world, himself as the true and the promised and the awaited king of Israel. And yet, there was still unclarity uh, from many about who he was. And so he highlights that here, not to highlight the unclarity, but rather to draw his disciples and those among the crowd who were following him to think about who he was, to lead them to a clear understanding and grasp of the reality of what it means to acknowledge him or to consider him as the Messiah. And so he asks them a question, who do men say that I am? And of course they give a variety of answers that we just read. Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the prophets, that is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. So their ideas were pretty of a low view of Christ in the sense of that they, they knew there was something unique about him, but he, they didn't really rise higher than the office of prophet uh, in their mind. And so they, were, they had an interest in him, they were intrigued by his ministry, they honored him, but they were all wrong in their understanding of who he is. And that certainly isn't merely a problem of the first century presentation of Christ to Israel, it's a problem that's endemic to humanity and even to the professing people of God. Among the church or among religious people in general, there's all kinds of views of how Christ is. We're familiar with that. Some that in just in kind of the, the general uh, world, he's a great moral teacher or he's a great spiritual leader. In other religions, even the religion of Islam, he is a great and he is an honored prophet. To some, he's a faithful guide in life. There's all kinds of views of Christ that fall short of who he actually is. 
And so in our consideration of that, Jesus asks a question to his disciples that he asked to us as well. And he says then, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And that is the most important and crucial question that could lay before anybody is, who do you say that Christ is? Who do you say that Christ is? Who do you, what do you believe about Christ truly in your heart, in your innermost thoughts, and in the, in the reality of your affections, the, the things that you believe about Christ that actually influence your life and direct the way that you think and live in this world? And so the question is before them and it is before you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Christ is? And of course, Peter here, often the spokesperson representing the other disciples, answered and said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. In other synoptics, it's you are the Christ. You are the son also of the living God. You are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the one we've been expecting. You are the one who is going to bring about all of the promises of God. You are the one that we have been waiting for. It is a monumental confession of Peter. It is one that he would come to understand later after the res- de- his death, after the resurrection, after the sending of the Holy Spirit with more clarity. But this is monumental for him to understand this. As a matter of fact, it's not something that came merely from his own intellect or his own ability to discern the things that were going on. Matthew records that for us that Jesus responded to him and said when he made this confession, this has been given to you from the Father. This has been given to you from the Father. This is divine revelation that has enabled you to perceive the reality of my person. But again, it was a reality that was not fully understood, which if you look in verse 30 is why, and this is a common theme in Mark, he warned them to tell no one about him why. They were not ready yet still, even with that confession, to be representatives. There's still much they didn't know which will become evident. And yet this is a very important thing to recognize. This isn't... Again, merely with Peter, it's easy to to look at him and to know the whole of the story and to recognize that there are things that he didn't get. And so it was a true statement, but yet it wasn't yet fully understood by him. And I would suggest to you that this happens many times in Christianity even now. Christ is very often presented and believed on in terms of orthodox statements about who he is, the God-man. But the implications of that work of Christ and the person of Christ and the reality of his mission and the fullness of it is not really grasped, at least in all of its implications. So it's not uncommon to have or to look at many churches who would be Protestant or evangelical and to read their statement of faith or their doctrinal statement and they're going to have an orthodox statement of faith. Christ is going to be the God-man, the second member of the Trinity. He is going to have come in the flesh. He's after gone to the cross to die for sins. He's raised from the dead bodily. He's returning in that same body he's going to establish his kingdom and righteousness and so forth and you can read that statement and yet when you see how it's actually lived out in the life of the church uh, it seems to defy the things that they professed about him and rather than being about Christ, it seems the church often seems to function as if man were the highest interest of God, as if his word were suggestions not authoritative, or as if it were not sufficient for the real issues of life. So in other words, it, we're not so different in, in many of these ways to say something true about Christ and to have true things that we profess about Christ, but to not really grasp them. 
to not really get the implications of it, to not really live consistent with what we profess. And so Jesus knows this, and so he goes next, and he's going to clarify his mission. He's going to clarify his mission. So after Peter makes this profession in verse 31, Jesus wants to bring substance to it, and he's introducing an aspect of who he is and his mission that, that was not really grasped by them. So in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Essentially, he's reminding them or laying before them the gospel from man's side. He's laying before them the very purpose of his mission, which was to come and to die as a sacrifice for their sin. This is what Peter, or Paul was essentially saying to the church in Corinth when he delivered to them the gospel, and he describes it in very similar terms. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is the good news of what God accomplished for our salvation, of what he did to provide salvation. The provision doesn't save anyone if it's not applied to them, however. He's saying this is what he came to do. In John chapter 12, as he was heading to the cross, uh, it says this, nearing his Passion Week. He says, now my soul, in John 12, 27, my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And this hour was referring to what he was about to undergo as he was handed over, just as he had said here, to the chief priests, to the rulers, to the scribes, to be mistreated, to suffer, to be killed uh, by them. And he says, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name. That was his purpose for coming. That was his purpose for coming, to lay down his life. Now for them, the statement was both offensive and incomprehensible, and it is to all people naturally. No man, no religion, nothing that is the product of man has ever concocted or even come close to an understanding of grace. To an understanding of grace that is presented to us in Christ. Nobody comes close to it. And as a matter of fact, when grace is rightly understood and rightly presented according to Scripture, it actually is something offensive to man. It actually angers them. Because it obliterates human pride. Because it absolutely makes man guilty and corrupt and in hope of nothing but what God will do for them, what God must do for them. So this is not the product of man. This is not something that was concocted by them. And so in fact it is not only offensive, it is incomprehensible to them as it is to all who are outside of Christ. Outside of God's saving work. It was offensive for them to think that the one who is the Christ would undergo such treatment and rejection even by the ones who claim to speak for God, and that is the ruling class then of Israel. It was incomprehensible to them that the Christ would be overpowered and made to succumb to the mistreatment of his creatures and even undergo a shameful death. That, there was no category in their head for that. And so Peter pulled him aside. We see this. Jesus makes a very clear statement, verse 32. He was stating the matter plainly. He was saying it evidently. This wasn't parabolic. This wasn't some kind of story where they were supposed to get the implications. He's saying very directly to them, this is what's going to happen. 
And the immediate response of Peter, again, no doubt acting representatively here of the other disciples and of the crowds, they would have thought the same way. Peter was the only one who had the, uh, well, we'd say lack of sense to actually go to Jesus and rebuke him. But that's what he did, verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him began to rebuke him. And there's a very strong parallel right there in the other words that, that he began to rebuke him. But the parallel is between, in verse 31, it says that Jesus began to teach them. And using a parallel statement, it says here, and Peter began to take him aside is literally what it is. He began to take him aside. It's incredible audacity here. And especially following his confession. But what it reveals, as true as the confession was, is that the Christ they wanted and were expecting was not the Christ who is. is not the Christ that he was, that he is, and that he was revealing about himself. His thinking was a reflection of his own conceptions of Christ, which did not fully conform to Scripture or to what he himself had just revealed to them and had been revealing to them all along. And the problem is they had a one-sided view of the Messiah. They had a one-sided view of the Messiah. Now, in one sense, this is understandable. This is understandable. We don't want to be too hard, and we'll see in just a sec how we can do the same thing. We don't want to be too hard on them. You can get why he thought that way. The scriptures did anticipate a ruler who was going to judge the nations in righteousness. A ruler who was going to come and bring material and spiritual prosperity and flourishing to the nation of Israel. They did anticipate one who would set the captives free and restore God's glory through uh, through his kingdom and through his people and establish his rule on earth. That was in the Old Testament. That was not wrong. That is what the rabbis looked for. That was the anticipation of them. That was the conception of the Messiah that they had. And Peter is merely reflecting what all of them thought and what all of them would have said about the Messiah. And again, those things were not untrue. They were not untrue. However, in another sense, they ignored or minimized the full reality of what the scriptures taught and everything that scriptures taught. That's why it was one-sided. They minimized or ignored the implications of the temple sacrifices regarding the depth of their sin and the insufficiency of blood and bulls of goats to take away sin. They knew that. It's in the Psalms. It's in the law. That was said. That wasn't sufficient. But they ignored the reality of that. They would have known if they would have been thinking rightly that the very structure of our worship means that something better than a bull must come to atone for our sins. They should have known that if they were thinking more deeply about it. They missed the fact that the scriptures also spoke of a Messiah who was suffering, who was marred, this one who was going to come beyond human recognition, who was going to be rejected by the people, who was going to offer himself as a guilt offering for his people, who was going to bear their iniquities. They missed in the Psalms where it said the chief cornerstone was to be rejected by the leaders, that he was going to be rejected by those who should receive him. They, they missed the fact that the prophets spoke of a future day when Israel would look on the one whom they had pierced and they would mourn for him. They missed those facts. And so Jesus rebuked the disciples, if you'll remember, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 after the resurrection when he said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. In other words, you should have gotten it. It's there. It's not hidden. This isn't made up. This isn't something new. But you only saw one side of it. You only emphasized one side of it. And you emphasized the, uh, emphasized the side that would lead to your glorification without taking due notice of your corruption and your sin and how God could bring any of those things about and those blessings about. And these are disciples who, if you remember when Jesus called them, he called several of them directly from the ministry and from following John the Baptist. And you remember the message of John the Baptist is, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, how exactly was he going to do that if he didn't die? Was he just going to pretend or say it's all done? Their implication there was no. The lamb was a sacrificial animal. The lamb had to die. There had to be an atonement for sin. Christ is the lamb. Then somehow he is going to provide atonement for sin. So it should not have taken them as off guard as it did. But Jesus doesn't, as understandable as that might be, from their human side, he makes no allowance for that. Peter began to take him aside and to rebuke him, telling him, this is never going to happen to you. But turning around in verse 33, Jesus turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. A stunning rebuke that reveals the spiritual influence behind it, which was Satan. Peter's thinking His objective, his reasoning, his deductions from Scripture were not reflective in that moment of the Spirit of God, but of the Spirit of Antichrist, of Satan himself. And it shows then that Satan can try to work even through well-meaning friends who are yet not submitted to the Scripture or not submitted to the implications of the Gospel. It can happen. It shows us that Satan can use well-meaning pastors and leaders and teachers who distort the gospel of Christ, such as non-lordship, cheap grace, or antinomian teachers. Those who deny in the gospel that there is also a requirement of repentance to gain and own Christ. Well-meaning, but wrong. And not speaking for the Spirit in those cases, but speaking for Satan. That's the seriousness of what he is saying to Peter. Peter, you may be well intending this remark, but you are not working the purposes of God, but against them. It is, again, another satanic attempt to discourage Jesus from his mission. And it's just another subtle sort of around-the-block kind of a way for Satan to try to put him off track. Even as he did in the wilderness when he says, hey, you can avoid the cross. I can give you all of these kingdoms and their glory if you fall down and worship me. And that's essentially what he's trying to do through Peter here and say, hey, don't, don't do the cross. There's, there's got to be another way. And Jesus, being utterly committed to the will of God, says there is no other way and any hindrance, any hindrance to my mission, I will confront with the utmost severity because I know its source. And again, he brings this temptation to us in similar ways even today through false church leaders who appear as teachers of righteousness and Satan who appears as an angel of light only to lead people away from Scripture and from the Gospel and from a true understanding of Christ. The Word of God is always the measure Always the measure. 
But essentially, he gets right to the point of it, the wrong thinking. When he says, get behind me, Satan, you're setting, you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but you are setting your mind on man's interest. In other words, you are looking at Messiah in a man-centered way rather than a God-centered way. You're understanding his purpose, his person, his kingdom, and what it means to be a disciple in a man-centered way and not a God-centered way. And in short, while this is a profound reality, a profound reality, to say it is man-centered, what does that mean? It means to do, say this in its most base or essential sense. It is to say it's understanding the work of God, it's understanding redemption, it's understanding the kingdom, it's understanding the Messiah and, and Christ himself uh, as having its end, its terminus on the good of man. That God's highest objective is centered on man, not himself. As a matter of fact, to say that in many places to those who profess Christ, I've shared some of the stories, you have your own, is outright offensive. It's outright offensive to them. But that's precisely what he's accusing them of here. It is to say that the greatest concern in God's universe is that man's will not be vitally violated in making a choice for God. God can't be sovereign over salvation and who believes. Why? Because that would diminish man. It would diminish authenticity. It would say the ultimate, the ultimate determining factor in the universe is the will of man, not the will of God. Because he wouldn't want to violate in any way man's sense of fairness. It is to say that Jesus Christ is one who saves, but he certainly wouldn't be one who would judge and execute righteous judgment on the earth. It is to say he wouldn't be one who would send to eternal punishment. And there's a thousand other ways that that can work out. There is a God-centered way to understand the gospel, which says this, which is what Scripture repeatedly makes plain to us, is that God's greatest interest in the universe is, guess what? Not even you and not the church. His greatest interest is himself and the glory that he brings through himself through his saving work through his work in Jesus Christ, so that all of the angels would marvel, all of the redeemed would marvel, and look to him, and in wonder, love, and praise, exalt his power, his glory, his goodness, his work of redemption, and exalt him. That's the end of it. And guess what? If you're a Christian, you delight in that. You would have it no other way. It would burden and sadden your heart for it to be any other way. If you're, and so that's what he's confronting here. Is he saying, you've got it all wrong, your perspective is wrong, it's really not about you, Peter, and you don't even understand your greatest need, you need a Messiah who will die for your sin, because it's it's that deep. And so Christ came first to address that issue, to bear what his people could not bear and overcome, and that is their sin, and he came to be a savior. That was the very announcement of his birth, that he came to save his people from their sin, their sin. Now, again, this is very common to miss this. There's a variety of ways that we can act as the church, just like, or the professing church, just like Peter did here. Sometimes it's as crass as a presentation of Jesus that came, died, and rose again to give us a prosperous life. And this is a little more obvious, but I did listen to a sermon on Mark 8 from one in this ilk, and here is uh, verbatim. Uh, when you speak it out, you give life to what you're saying. The title of the sermon was Be a Blessing to Yourself. 
Uh, it's not enough just to think this. You don't bless yourself by just dwelling on positive thoughts. Nothing happens until you speak. When you say, I am blessed, blessings come looking for you. When you say, I am prosperous, good starts to heading your way. When you say, I am healthy, health starts tracking you down. Sometimes it's more subtle, that's a bit more obvious. And it's a mix of true things said about Christ, but there is in tone and emphasis that doesn't ignore certain truths about Scripture, but it minimizes sin, it minimizes repentance, it minimizes atonement, and it makes Jesus little more than our dearest friend, not the Holy and the Sovereign Lord. It can come in a variety of ways. But Jesus will have none of that, and so he calls him to true discipleship. He wants them to understand the path that he's calling them to of true faith. And so he says in verse 34, and this is the call to repentance. And summoning the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, the, the Messiah has come on a mission to provide atonement for sin. He, he has come to undergo a baptism of death for the sin of his people, as it were. He has, he has come to lay down his life, and those who follow him must follow in those steps. And so he says that involves three things. We'll get these just very briefly. You must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. This is, of course, exactly the opposite of what our natural inclination is and what our culture, the mantra of our culture, culture. The theme of our culture, which all has to do with self. The ultimate expression, of course, would be the sexual revolution and transgenderism and other things where self defines reality. Everything is defined through my, my own sense, my own declaration of what is true. That's the highest and most egregious kind of form, but there are a thousand other ways that we do it. Really, it's the opposite of what spiritual death is. So this kind of self-denial, what is spiritual death? It's, design, it's defined as indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Ephesians chapter 2. Self-denial in following Christ is exactly the opposite. By nature, we want to live in accordance to our own desires, our own goals, our own thoughts, without reference to God revealed in Christ, as if the highest priority in our life, of our existence, and of our definition and understanding of self is to pursue our own happiness, pleasure, and success. That's endemic to being a fallen human creature. The call to discipleship, however, is to deny yourself. And this is not simply a call to an austere, austere life or simply a call to be very self-disciplined. That's not what he's talking. That's much deeper than that. It is to deny yourself, your very selfhood. You deny as the ruling reality in your life, your self-will, your self-reference to everything that you encounter and every person you encounter. Self is the ruling motive in your life. It's essentially a call to slavery and say that self dies. I'm willing for self to die. And to follow Christ. It's a call to yield self to faithful obedience to the Lord. To submit every thought, desire, plan, or goal to His will and not your own. It's saying that my life is not my own. I've been bought with a Christ. It's not me who is going to rule my life. I submit that completely to Christ. It is the most fundamental level a call to deny self as your highest priority. But rather His will, His glory, and His kingdom. 
There is a famous poem, some of y'all are familiar with it, called Invictus. And it ends with these lines that have been often repeated. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's Psalm 2. We're going to throw his fetters off of us. We're going to live as we want. We don't live under a king named Jesus. We live under one king, and that's called self and me. That's the king I serve. That's the authority that I obey. That is the end in which I pers- in everything I pursue is self. And Jesus says, there's no place in the kingdom for that. There's the famous song, I did it my way, which would be the very anthem of hell. I did it my way. Jesus was not going to tell me right and wrong. Jesus was not going to rule my life. No Christian was going to tell me and no scripture was going to define for me what is right and wrong. I will do that. I will make my own truth. I will stand on my own two feet. I will be master of my destiny. I am captain of my soul. And Jesus says, then you have no part in the kingdom. You have no part in the kingdom. We come to Christ on his terms. Secondly, he says, you must die to yourself. You must take up your cross. A man-centered view takes us to mean all of the things that are a burden into you in life. My cross is my job. My cross is my disobedient children. My cross is my unbelieving and frustrating spouse. My cross is the circumstances I live in. The cross is my finances. All of that has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about here. Zero. We say that sometimes. What does he mean? The cross, of course, was an instrument for them of torture and death, well known in that world. For Jesus, however, it was also the means of his offering a life as an atonement for sin. It was the mean where he would be held up before all to see as God's sacrifice for our sin, being laid on him in all of its fullness and all of its wrath and all of his fury and all of the holy justice of God. It would be borne by Christ. That is that fancy word, propitiation. He would remove it. By taking it himself and remove it from his people. That's what the cross was. It was the consequence of Christ being a light in the world because the darkness hates the light. Because it exposes sin. For us to take up our cross then, it is the willingness to take on the identification of Christ and bear the world's hostility to him even if it means death. That's what it means. That we are willing in following Christ to take up our cross, it is what Paul meant when he said, I die daily. I die daily. And then it is a call then to full obedience, discipleship. Follow me. This is the end of repentance. You must, you must rid yourself of the idea that you are the master of your fate, that yourself is going to be the ruler and director of your life, and you submit it to my lordship. You must take up your cross and be willing to die and say that the, the end of what I'm willing to suffer in order to gain Christ and be identified with him is even death. And then to follow him no matter where he leads, no matter what he calls me to. This is the call to repentance. This is the call to discipleship. This is the call to faith. Anyone who does not deny themselves, anyone who is unwilling to take up their cross, and anyone who does not follow him is not in the kingdom. It's that simple. They're not in the kingdom. They're not a Christian. It's not saying those who struggle with denying themselves. It's not to say those who have an internal battle within themselves because the flesh is still present. It's not saying those who stumble and fall and at times choose themselves. It is saying, but those who do not associate what it means to bear the name of Christian with this fundamental internal reality of what it means to belong to him doesn't belong to him. It means fundamentally a Christian understands he is the Lord. And then the cost of repentance, and this I'll say very quickly. 
the cost of repentance. So he says, that's what you must do. And then whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses it for my sake in the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It means that your life in this world, the idea of soul, uh, that, uh, or life there, it's the word sometimes translated soul, it has the idea of being present in this world, living as a, a living, sentient being in this world in relationship with creation and with other people, as your existence here as present. He's saying you give all of that up. You give it up for the gospel and you shall save it. In other words, if you want to save your life in this world, you want to continue living rather as undisturbed as you can and the gospel isn't worth it, he says, well, then guess what? You can have that. I won't keep it from you. As a matter of fact, I'll give it to you. But you're making an exchange which you need to be aware of. The exchange is you're exchanging that for your eternal soul. You're exchanging that for your eternal soul. And what exactly is that exchange worth? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What does it profit a man? The idea, just to sum that up, is simply this. What does it profit you if you had every pleasure, every desire, and that can be something egregious, and it can be something as simple as to live a trouble-free life, to live a life of leisure in whatever way. Or it can be the most grotesque and extreme forms of whatever sinful desire someone might have. It doesn't matter. He's saying for you, if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul, what does it mean to forfeit your soul? It means if you say, I'm going to choose the pleasure that I have in this world and whatever I can gain out of this world, and I'm going to mark it as the greatest value over against eternal suffering and separation from Christ. It's saying that you're making that decision. It is to say that when all things considered, the gospel is just simply not enough for me to undergo what it requires. And so I can either try to play a foot of religion and keep one foot in the door and the other, and that's the broad path that leads to destruction, he says. Or I can just reject it out altogether and say that I'm just simply going to ignore it. It doesn't matter. I'm fine as I am. Thank you very much. But he says that's fine, but realize you're making a decision. You are making a decision. And you will suffer the consequences of whatever those decisions are. If you choose to go the way of the lie and of Satan, then we will share Satan's fate. And as Jesus said in Matthew 25, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. If you want to be a friend with the world, you make yourself at hostility with God. Jesus is saying, pick your side. Pick your side. Pick, pick where you're going to go. Pick what you want. But realize that what you pick, that you hold on to, that's what you're going to bear. And so choose well. And of course the right choice is to gain Christ. And then he says at the end, and what is it worth in the end anyway? If someone is ashamed of me, someone is ashamed of me, ashamed to speak my truth, and, and thinking of the ashamed of the one who himself for, the, for speaking the truth of God was spit upon and mocked and went, underwent the most horrendous kind of torture, and that didn't even compare to what he endured from the hand of the Father as he gave himself up as a guilt offering for us. And he says, I'm going to do this, but you're going to be ashamed? You don't want somebody to think you're stupid. You don't want somebody to think you're unsophisticated. You don't want to bear the, the consequences in the world of how they view you. He says, that's fine. That's fine. You can do that. That's yours. But realize this, that when you die and when you stand before my Father and you stand before me in my exalted, exalted and holy and glorious state, I will disown you. 
and I will be ashamed of you. He's just saying, realize that. That's your choice. But it's not the choice that he's calling them to do. He doesn't say that in order to leave them in that condition, but to show them the consequences so there would be a right choice. And what is the right choice? To embrace him. To say with the Apostle Paul, it's no longer I who live, the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul, who said, I don't consider the suffering of this world worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come for those who belong to him. To say, even though there's suffering in this world, I'll hold on to the promise that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, that he will preserve me, he will keep me, and he will take me to my glorious home. And the first second in eternity, everything else becomes meaningless and forgotten because of the greatness of the glory that's there. And that's what he calls us to. And that is in these testimonies what we hear of God open the eyes of these four individuals to see that very truth and reality and to want to give public profession to him. So let me pray and then we'll hear their testimonies in baptism. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us your word. Christ, thank you for coming to redeem us. Thank you for laying down your life as a sacrifice for our sin. Thank you for suffering for our sin. Thank you for the wonder of Uh, the testimony of your dying for us and rising to life to give us hope, to give us forgiveness, to give us even more than all of that, reconciliation so that we can have what we were created to have, and that is a holy, worshipful, joyful, and righteous relationship with our Maker, with the Father in Christ. And so to that end, I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged as we hear these testimonies. And to that end, if there's any here who are still refusing your call, that you would today change them and give them faith in Christ. And we ask these things in your precious name, our Lord. Amen.